Let's take our Bibles tonight again to the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 2. Tonight, as we are continuing our study through this book, we're going to be finishing up chapter 2 of 2 Peter. The title of tonight's lesson is The Failure of False Prophets. The Failure of False Prophets. You know, disappointment is a part of life. And there are just ordinary disappointments that are not intentional or malicious or anything like that in nature. Just people and circumstances fall short of our expectations. And that's because we live in a fallen world. But then there are disappointments that are caused by intentional deceptions and fake promises. And some of the worst offenders in this regard are modern marketers and advertisers. It's astonishing to me some of the claims that companies get away with making. For instance, I heard recently of a fitness company that was offering lifetime memberships and a guarantee that you will lose two pounds a week. Think about that for a second. Simple math will tell you your life's not going to be very long if you lose two pounds a week. Companies promise you that their product or service will do nearly miraculous things, but rarely do they ever deliver on those promises fully. Have you ever had that happen to you before? You thought this product or service was going to be the solution to all the problems, and it just did not work out. Yet it's amazing how many people will set themselves up for disappointment by believing the advertiser's lofty claims. Instead of practicing some healthy skepticism and some discernment before they set their hearts on whatever it might be. Well, this is similar to what is going on here in 2 Peter chapter 2. In this chapter, Peter is warning against false prophets. Remember, the theme of this book is growing in grace, as we've been studying through it tonight. And we have to, if we're going to grow properly, we have to be on the lookout for false teaching and false doctrine. And so chapter 2 Peter warns about that, and he puts a special emphasis on the the punishment that false teachers are going to face in the early verses. And then here in verses 17 through 22, he, he talks more about the disappointment that false teachers inevitably bring into other people's lives. Look at verse 17 with me, 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll read down through verse 22. These are wells without water, the false prophets is who he's referring to, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing 
in the mire. You know, as astonishing as it may seem, false teachers are even worse than modern marketers. They make lofty promises about the benefits of their teaching, but they fail to deliver every time. And those that follow them are doomed to disappointment and frustration. In these verses, Peter exposes the fake promises made by false prophets. And he sounds the alarm against being persuaded by their polished and high-pressured sales tactics. We need to wise up to their lying ways and not be deceived by those polished presentations. Instead of delivering on what they promise, false teachers are headed for destruction and are bound in slavery to sin. So we must avoid them if we want to avoid the same fate. Notice with me, number one on our outline, the emptiness of false teachers. The emptiness of false teachers. In verse 17, Peter describes the false teachers as being like wells without water or clouds that are carried overhead by a storm. Picture yourself walking across a dry, hot desert. After today's temperatures, you may think that sounds good. But imagine you've been walking through this desert for hours, maybe days, without a single thing to drink. You are literally dying of thirst. And off on the horizon, you saw a well. As you walk toward it, your thirst grows as you anticipate that cool water that's going to quench your thirst when you arrive to draw from that well. But imagine your disappointment if you arrived at that well only to find that it had gone dry. Or imagine you're a farmer and this season had been particularly tough because there had been a drought. Not much rain to speak of at all. Your crops are shriveled and they're on the verge of ruin. And one day as you're standing looking at your field wondering if you're going to get any harvest, you see off in the distance a bank of clouds approaching. Well, naturally, you're going to get excited because those clouds mean hope, the hope of rain that will come and drench the parched soil and and, uh, uh, that will nourish those plants so they can grow. But as you stand there watching this bank of clouds, to your dismay, it goes directly overhead and is gone without ever letting drop a single bit of water. Peter says that's what false prophets are like wells without water and clouds carried about of a tempest. I love the illustration here. Both the well and the rain cloud uh, involve a hope and an anticipation of water that will quench the thirst. Proverbs 25, 25 says, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Psalm 42, 1, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Spiritual desire is like a thirst. But here's the thing. False prophets exploit that desire for their own selfish and covetous ends. They know that people are created by God with a natural craving for spiritual things. And so they will appeal to that desire, that thirst, for their own benefit. Like the empty well, they promise water, but they don't deliver. Like the cloud that doesn't drop any water, it 
it brings hope and anticipation, but it ends with dis- disappointment. From a distance, they may seem to offer great hope. And understand, this is a very important part of their mode of operation because false teachers would never have any influence if they didn't lead people to believe that they had something good to offer. You need to understand that because oftentimes we will hear things, see things, read things, and it, and it seems to offer some spiritual benefit, but we need to be careful just because it seems like it's something good. It may not be in the end. In fact, the most successful false teachers are the best at giving the impression that their teaching is genuine, life-changing truth, and, and that it will make your life the best it can be. That's why they choose titles for their books, such as Your Best Life Now. All right, They're not going to sell many books if the title was Read This and You'll Be Disappointed. <laughs> so they, they create hope, they create anticipation, But because their teaching is not the truth, it leads to failure and frustration and not true spiritual fulfillment. That's a typo on there. Okay, the word fulfillment in the blank. I'm going to have to fire my proofreader again. I keep firing him, but every day I wake up and there he is in the mirror again. (laughs) It doesn't lead to true spiritual fulfillment. In fact, the only thing they succeed in doing is disappointing you every single time. Turn over to the book of Jude for a second. You can keep your finger in 2 Peter. Just turn five or six pages over to the right in your Bible to the book of Jude. Look at verses 12 and 13. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Does that sound familiar? That's the same thing, uh, same imagery that Peter used as well, describing false teachers. And that's what Jude is talking about. Now, middle of verse 12, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That's false prophets. I like what Jude said there about them being trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit twice dead. I remember the the story of Jesus, uh, the week of, of his crucifixion. He's going into town and he sees a fig tree all covered with leaves. And he comes up to it expecting to find figs, quote-unquote expecting, but there weren't any. And so what did Jesus do? He cursed that tree and it withered. Why? Because that tree had given a false impression. It had promised that there would be something there, but it was empty. It was a tree without fruit. And that's what false teachers are. They make great promises, but their promises are empty. Now what would you do with a dry well? Well, smart thing to do would be fill it in so no one falls in and gets hurt. Or at least put a fence around it or something so that people are made aware of the danger. You ever heard of, of stories or seen stories on the news and maybe a child or something falling into a well? It can be very dangerous. Well, the same th- kind of thing must be done with false teachers too. That's what Peter's doing here. He's warning us, hey, stay away from them. Paul said in Romans 16, 
Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Mark them, avoid them, Paul says. Now what happens to a cloud that doesn't bring rain? Peter says in verse number 17 that to that cloud, the mist of darkness is reserved forever. In other words, it evaporates and it's gone, never to be seen again. The same kind of thing happens to the false prophets. One day, their influence will fade. They'll be gone and they'll be experiencing their eternal judgment. Or Jude says they're like wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You ever seen a shooting star before? It's neat to see. How long did you see it? Just like that. Very brief. And yes, false prophets may be stars in their time, but they're falling stars, and their light will go out. They were nothing more than a brief flash, and then they'll vanish. Don't be deceived then by their empty promises. If you want real, life-giving water, stick with the true gospel. Jesus in John chapter 4 said, Whosoever drinketh of this water, speaking of the water from the well that he was standing at talking to this Samaritan woman, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Only Jesus, only the gospel truly satisfies. Now notice, secondly, the enticement of false teachers. We've seen their emptiness, but if that's the case, then what's the lure? What's the draw? Why, why would people follow them at all? Well, verse 18 explains that. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. So there must be something to draw people to false doctrine or else Satan would never succeed in ensnaring people in it. And to get people to commit to their worthless, empty teachings, these false teachers use eloquence and then a good old-fashioned sales tactic called bait-and-switch. Promise you one thing, but they get to the sales counter and whoop, you get something different. That's what they do. They promise one thing, but deliver another. The, the phrase that's translated here, great swelling, great swelling words, that word could literally be translated hyper bulky. That's the idea here. I mean, these are, this, this is, we're talking about extreme eloquence. Peter characterizes their sales pitch as using extreme eloquence to appeal to the desires of our sinful flesh to entice people. In other words, they're generally very pleasant to listen to. They usually have very winsome personalities. They usually have very polished presentations. They usually um, are, are charming and likable people. And that's all a part of the plot. They want to allure. That's the word used in verse number 18. They want to entice. They want to tempt people in. Now, what is it that they're appealing to? Well, Jude verse 16 says these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words. 
having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. See, it's all about them. It's all about them getting the followers and getting the sales and getting the clicks and getting the likes. That's what modern-day false teachers do. They sell their books. They get the likes, the shares, the followers on social media. They pack out conference centers for their seminars using highly polished sales techniques. Now, there's no denying that they're entertaining to listen to, but we must be careful not to confuse eloquence with trustworthiness. Just because someone sounds good, that does not mean that their teaching is good. And listen, this goes both ways. Just because something sounds good doesn't mean it is good. You know, during COVID, anybody with a webcam and a white coat could put out a video and call themselves an expert, you know. (laughs) And people people were so thirsty for information because we just didn't know what was going on. It seemed like everybody was the expert. Everybody knew what they were talking about. Everybody had the polished presentations. Well, I'm not what you might call the brightest light bulb in in the pack, but I know if this expert doesn't agree with that expert, one of them's got to be wrong, all right? Not everybody who calls themselves an expert has a polished presentation, has a really nice webcam and good lighting, actually knows what they're talking about. Don't be deceived. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul was very careful when he made known to the Corinthians his philosophy of ministry. He didn't want them to rest in his polished presentations. He wanted their faith to rest in the power of God. He said, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In fact, Paul in another place would write that he was criticized for the way that he spoke in person, his public speaking abilities. He was criticized for that and said that he he really wasn't that impressive in essence. You think of other famous figures in the Bible. Moses, for example, famously said that he was slow of speech. Uh, uh, Jeremiah, he said, I'm a kid, what can I do? And many people think that in order to you know, to do something for God, you must, you know, have some great, powerful speaking ability and be super eloquent. Well, that's not true. And neither is it true that just because someone is eloquent that they're actually doing the Lord's work. That's the important point here. Now, false teachers appeal to fleshly desires to draw people away from the truth back into the lies and the errors that they were saved out of. They allure through the lusts of the flesh and through much wantonness. They're leading people to live a life of no restraint. That's what the word wantonness means. It means no restraint, no restrictions, no rules. They appeal to people's desire to be free of all rules and restrictions to do whatever they feel like doing. Look, there is so much false doctrine that's going around today. that This is exactly what it is. Telling people there's no rules, it's just about enjoying God. There's no rules, there's no restrictions, do whatever you feel like doing. And this is simply not true. Every relationship is governed by certain rules, including our relationship with God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. There are rules, but see, we have a rebellious heart. And somebody says, no, 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 you don't need all those rules, you can do whatever you want. 
there's a part of us that says, that sounds good. It's called our flesh. It wants that kind of a life. It wants to be free of restraint. It wants to be able to do whatever it wants to do. And that's what they appeal to. And the reason they succeed as often as they do is that we all have these fleshly lusts and temptations that, that they can appeal to. Jude verse, or James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Don't think that you are immune to this. That's why the Holy Spirit is using the pen of Peter to communicate to us today the danger here, because we're all susceptible. Now, there's, a, there's an element of truth here that we can't gloss over. We can't just skim past it, because verse 18 says that, those, that the people that they are targeting are those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. The false teachers are going after believers. Why is that? It's because Satan doesn't matter what lies a person believes. All he cares is that they don't believe the truth. So when a person believes the truth, he becomes a special target for Satan and a target of all those who are doing Satan's bidding. So understand that tonight, that there is an enticement that makes it possible for the false teachers to succeed in what they're doing. But also understand, number three, the entanglement of the false teachers from verses 19 through 22. Verse 19 says, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. Much has been made in, uh, about the concept and the topic of Christian liberty. And unfortunately, some people have wrongly defined Christian liberty as meaning that you are free to do whatever you want to do. Now, they try to explain that by saying, because you're a Christian, you will only want to do what God wants you to do. Well, that would be nice if that were the case, but I still have this sinful flesh that sometimes wants to do what it wants to do. For example, I know that I should be getting up in the morning and getting busy with my day and being productive with my life and redeeming the time. But I tell you what, there are times when that alarm clock goes off that I just want to pitch it out the window. I don't always want to do what I ought to do. Now these false teachers, they promise liberty. This is one of their big promises. You can be free, free from the chains of legalism, free from the bondage of your strict upbringing, free from the oppression of orthodoxy. They promise liberty. And the irony is that they themselves are servants, are slaves of corruption. Here's the thing. They promise people liberty, but what they're promising is not true freedom. Their brand of liberty is the wantonness, that no restraints, that licentiousness, which is another biblical word to describe the kind of living without restraints of the Bible or out without restraints of the Holy Spirit. It's a false liberty that leads to greater bondage because it leads to a life of sinfulness and selfishness. By continuing in sin, a person is remaining in bondage to sin. They may think that they're free to do whatever they please, 
but they're a slave to their sinful, selfish desires. Listen to the words of Jesus from John chapter 8. Verse 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And so these false teachers promise liberty, but they enslave and entangle people just like they are enslaved and entangled by their false teaching. One particularly deceptive form of false doctrine that the New Testament addresses is the sin of legalistic self-righteousness. That is the idea that keeping rules and regulations can help you achieve greater favor with God. And there's an irony here that they would use this teaching to ensnare people. But understand that Christian liberty means not that we are free to do whatever we want to do, but that God has set us free so that we can walk in the Spirit, not so we can remain self-righteous. That's the idea of Christian liberty. Galatians 5 and verse number 1. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Paul was talking about uh, talking to the Galatians about not giving in to the temptation to live a self-righteous works-based life because that is appealing to the flesh. The flesh says, I can do it. The flesh says, I can achieve it. The flesh says, I can earn favor with God. He says, no, don't do that because if you do, Verse 1 of Galatians 5 says you'll be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. That brings slavery. True Christian liberty is not the liberty to do what you want to do. It's not freedom to live for yourself or your pleasure. Christian liberty is the freedom from sin that we have through Christ so that we can be a servant of God and others. That seems like a paradox. You know what a paradox is, right? It's not two doctors sitting together. It's, it's, a, it's a statement that seems to contradict itself. Liberty, we are set free. We have been given liberty so we can be servants. But yes, that's the biblical idea of Christian liberty. So we're, not that we're set free to do whatever we want, do whatever our flesh feels like, but we're set free from our sin so that we can serve God and others. Romans 6.18, being then made free from sin, he became the servants of righteousness. Galatians 5.13, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love, here it is, serve one another. That's why God has set us free. Now back in our text, in verse number 21, really verses 20 and 21, Peter makes a statement about the condition of false teachers. And he says that it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now some people mistakenly teach that this passage says you can lose your salvation by turning away from the gospel after having had saving faith. That's not what he says here. He never any point says that a saved person can get unsaved. But there are two cases that this passage can apply to and the principle that he's teaching is this 
that if you know the truth and turn away from it, you're going to be worse off than if you had never known the truth in the begin, uh, to begin with. There are two cases that, that that applies to. The first is a Christian who knows better because they know the gospel and yet they choose to believe false doctrine and they become backslidden. They have the truth, they believe the truth, they are saved, but at some point they drift away from that, they believe false doctrine, and they backslide. That Christian will be more miserable than a lost person who was never saved to begin with. Why? Why is that the case? Because with greater knowledge comes greater accountability. And for the Christian, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the chastening hand of God prevent a Christian from enjoying their sinful way of living. We have to be very careful. I don't think that we have the right to say definitively of someone else, you are saved, you are not saved. I think we have to be careful about that. But there are some very clear indications in Scripture about things that are characteristic of a saved person and things that are not characteristic of a saved person. And if a person is saved, one of the things that will be true is they will never be able to truly enjoy sin. Now, they may have very brief pleasure, but it will not be lasting enjoyment. Why? because the Holy Spirit will be convicting them, because God will be chastening them. And even though they might dull their consciences, and even though they may go very far down that road in the wrong direction, there will always be a void, there will always be a frustration, there will always be a dissatisfaction, because they're children of God and they're not acting as they should. Hebrews 12, 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth joyous, but grievous. And remember, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So the first case that these verses would apply to would be a, a, a saved person who's backslidden. They're going to be miserable. They're going to be miserable. But the other case that this would apply to is a lost person who's never truly trusted Christ as their Savior. They may have changed their behavior or may have given the appearance of being a Christ follower, but in reality, they were a wolf in sheep's clothing. That person will be worse off having known the truth and rejected it than if they had never known the truth to begin with. And so, Peter uses an illustration in verse number 22 when he says, but it has happened to them, According to the true proverb, the dog turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to a wallowing in the mire. Or, if you're from the south, wallering. This is actually a quote from the book of Proverbs. Um, found uh, in, uh, I lost a page here, where'd it go? Ah, there it is. Found in Proverbs 26 and verse number 11. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. And, and Peter says, false teachers are like that. Why does a dog do that which is absolutely grotesque and disgusting, according to our definition? Why does he do that? Because he's a dog. That's why. You take a pig, you wash it up, 
get it ever so sparkling clean, let that pig go, what's it going to do? Get it right back in the mud. Why? Because it's a pig. That's what pigs do. In the same way, many false teachers are just wolves in sheep's clothing. They were never really saved. And so they went into error because that's who they were by definition. They were unbelievers. There's no more modern expression that maybe should apply here. You can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. Clean it up, dress it up, but it doesn't change it. A pig will act like a pig. A dog will act like a dog. A wolf will devour and destroy the flock. So take heed to the warning. Stay away from false teachers who promise you freedom only to trap you in lies and sin. False teachers bring nothing but disappointment. I heard a story many years ago and I, I looked it up to find out and make sure I was remembering it correctly. And uh, I was able to verify it. The story goes like this. Back in the days of World War II, there was a battle taking place in North Africa between the British Army and the Germans. And for most of the battle, it seemed that the Germans had the upper hand. And in fact, by all accounts, they were on the verge of defeating the British when all of a sudden, the Germans stopped firing, stopped fighting, and began to wave the white flags. At the first indication that the British accepted the surrender, the German soldiers began to run across the desert of North Africa where they were fighting to the British lines and they wanted to get one thing and one thing only, a drink of water. Come to find out as the Germans had been making their way through that area, they had come across a pipeline that the British Army of uh, Corps of Engineers had recently built to transport fresh water, only it had not been completely tested yet. And so the British soldiers, seeing this pipeline, took their machine guns and they blew holes all in it to get to the water. And as the water came pouring out, the soldiers ran up and began to drink thirstily. And by the time they realized their mistake, it was too late. The British had been using seawater, salt water, to test the pipe for leaks. And so the water that the Germans thought was fresh water was actually salt water. And the danger of salt water is that it actually takes more water to eliminate the salt from it than you drink in. And the net result is you end up worse, more dehydrated for having drank the, uh, the salt water. And that's what the Germans had done. And when they, when they realized their mistake, it was too late and they were going to die unless they got some fresh water. And so they surrendered to the British just so that they could get a drink. I thought about that story as I was going over this lesson because I think that's a lot like the situation with false teachers. There are a lot of people today that are dying of spiritual thirst. They're trying to find something that will quench that thirst. And they see the false teachers and there's hope, there's promise, there's anticipation. And they rush in and they just start gulping it down. But by the time they realize their mistake, it's too late. The damage has been done. Many people rush to false prophets thinking that they'll quench that spiritual thirst. And even worse than those who realize their mistake are those who never realize it. A false teacher would ultimately have been better off not having known the truth than having known the truth and denying it. 
And you and I would be better off not allowing them to influence us with their vain words. They may have impressive sales pitches. They may even believe what they are saying, but understand they are wells without water. They are clouds who bring no rain. They bring nothing but disappointment. So take heed to the scripture that Peter, at the end of chapter 1, said is the more sure word of prophecy. Take heed to that. You do well to take heed unto it, as to a light that shineth in a dark place. And don't get carried away with the vanity of false doctrine. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that encourages us and that nourishes us. And Lord, I do pray that we would guard ourselves against the influence of false teachers as our world is filled with people spreading lies and deception about you and about your word. May we stand firm on the truth of the gospel. May every word of scripture be precious to us that we would not compromise a single one. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.